My name is Matthew Moseson, and I have the privilege of reading scripture today. Today's scripture is 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. And good morning, my friends. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you this morning. Thank you so much for joining us in worship on this beautiful day. My name is Dave Hahn, and I am one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and I get to open God's Word with and for you today. So yesterday afternoon, early evening, my son Seth and I were on our way back from our annual retreat to Crivitz, Wisconsin. It's about three hours north. Uh, when I got a text from Jonathan that began, buddy, I've been holding off on sending this message for the last four hours. Nothing good ever follows a message that begins that way, right? It's never, buddy, I've been holding off on sending this message for the last four hours, but I wanted to let you know that Jessica and I won the billion dollar lottery and we would like to split it with you and with Sheila. It's never that. It's never that. So Jonathan went on to tell me that he threw out his back, which is not something that's a too rare of an occurrence for him. He's got back issues and stuff, and the back issues are bad enough that uh, sometimes he is unable to sit upright and he's unable to walk on his own, and that's kind of the place that he was at least last night. And so, uh, as you can imagine, it's not only hard to sit up and hard to stand up, but it's probably also very hard to preach that way. So I wrote him back and I said, I don't even really know what to tell you. As I'm, I'm in vacation mode still. I don't really know what to tell you. And earlier that weekend, I had dumped an ATV over on myself. So I'm a little dinged up and bruised up as well. So I'm like, I'm just not in a space where I'm able to function with this kind of message being thrown back at me. But in a bit of a panic, we decided to experiment today. So what I did is I looked at his notes for today's message and I will attempt to inject as much of myself, either good or bad, into the notes as I can. I am trusting, as always, that God is going to use this hybrid approach to bring himself glory, and I am expecting that this little adventure will go fairly well because Jonathan and I actually think pretty similarly about the gospel, even if our deliveries are admittedly a tad different. <laughs> so it is not our intent to make a habit of this kind of a practice. Uh, we will only try to employ this kind of a thing in emergencies. So are you ready to go on this ride with me? All right, awesome. So if you remember last week, we addressed the Apostle John's suggestion that those who have been born of God have overcome the world. 
Those who have been born of God have overcome the world, meaning born-again believers, and there are no other kind. Believers are born again or they're not believers. Born-again believers are no longer bound by the world's perspective, its values, or its systems. And we know that this is true because Jesus himself is the one who overcame the world through his death, through his resurrection, and our life is now wrapped up in him. His life is our life. It is no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. So in our text this morning, John continues to combat the false teaching and the heresies spread by the Gnostics while restating his argument by readdressing the reality of Jesus who is the Christ. In other words, if you have read John's first epistle, 1 John, this far, and you find yourself at least intrigued by Jesus, but you're not really sure what to believe about him, The Apostle John in this section wants to show you a different facet of the person and the nature of Jesus. In other words, John wants to show you how amazing Jesus is. So let's look once again at verse 5 of today's passage, which reads, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Friends, many of the decisions that we make in our lives and many of the heartaches that we experience are evidence that our ultimate hope cannot and will not be found in anything that this world has to offer. C.S. Lewis stated this idea so succinctly by saying, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. What else would explain such a thing? So, to the extent that you have found this world's value system to be insufficient, to be lacking, to be unsatisfying, or to be unfulfilling, and to the degree that you desperately want to know how you can be loosed from the chains of this world and lifted out of its proverbial quicksand, John wants you to know, and he wants me to know, that our only hope, our only hope, is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In verse 6 of this passage, John describes Jesus this way. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So obviously this passage is somewhat unusual, but it's very poetic in regards to the language that John uses to give evidence of the identity of Christ. So while it is unusual, it is also incredibly poetic. In describing the teaching of the Gnostics, we quoted from the church father Irenaeus in the first week of this series on 1 John, who said, and this gives us insight as to how the Gnostics thought, and it also helps explain verse 6 as we read it. So the church father Irenaeus said, they, speaking of the Gnostics, represented Jesus as having not been born of a virgin, but as being the son of Joseph and Mary, who was more righteous prudent, and wise than other men. 
After his baptism, Christ, who is Messiah God, descended upon him in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler. And then he proclaimed the unknown father and performed miracles. But at last, Christ departed from Jesus. And that Jesus suffered and rose again, while Christ remained impassable, meaning he was incapable of suffering or feeling pain inasmuch as he was a spiritual being. So in reading all of that, did you catch what's happening here? Are you catching what's going on with Gnosticism? Essentially, there is a divide between the person of Jesus and Christ. Christ himself did not suffer on the cross, but Jesus did. When Jesus went to the cross, Christ vacated him because according to Gnostics, God cannot suffer. And so Jesus was left to suffer. Jesus himself was not born of a virgin, but he was born of Joseph and of Mary. So we're talking about a very, very different Jesus here, which would explain why the Gnostics would have confused the believers in Asia Minor who this letter was written to. This heretical understanding of Jesus Christ is the reason that the Gnostics so valued the spiritual at the expense of the physical. Do you remember in 1 John where he said, if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. He was addressing Gnostics who believed that sin, because it is rooted in the physical, does not matter and you actually do not sin because you are a spiritual being and not a physical one. That's what's happening in Gnosticism. And the Gnostics assumed that everything of importance dwelled in the spiritual and that the physical was unimportant. And as such, the Gnostics could not live with the idea that the God of the universe either could or would suffer. So they came up with a theology that supported their presumptions. That's Gnosticism. And struggling with a certain aspect of God is oftentimes how cults come into being if it goes too far. There are aspects of the character and the person of God that are difficult to understand. And what Gnostics did is they took their struggles and they made a different theology out of it entirely. In our modern culture, we have cults like the Jehovah Witnesses who struggle with, among other things, a triune God. They struggle with the idea of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. One God in three persons. It doesn't make sense to them. And their heretical theology emanates from their struggle to understand, believe, or accept what scripture and Orthodox Christians have taught and believed for two millennia. Because we do not understand it, because we do not accept it, we are creating an entirely new theology altogether. And 2,000 years ago, Gnostics struggled with the idea that God would allow Jesus, who claimed to be God, to suffer. So they created a new theology that separated Jesus from the Christ, separating the humanity of Christ from the divinity of Christ. And in so doing, like many cults today, created a false Jesus that was of their own making. And this was the Jesus and this was the gospel, quote unquote, that they were bringing forth to the churches in Asia Minor and that John is writing against. So, 
In verse 6, John argues against the Gnostics by describing Jesus, the means by which Christians overcome the world. And he describes him as the one who came by the water and the blood. Now, there is a little bit of ambiguity in in its uniqueness as to what exactly John is referencing here in verse 6 when he says the water and the blood. And if you were to look at several Bible commentaries, you would find several possibilities that scholars would recommend to explain this verse. But for the sake of time and not to go through all of the different ways that that verse has been interpreted, and on behalf of both Jonathan and myself, I'm going to give you Jonathan's and my best shot at explaining verse 6. We happen to agree on this. One of the best rules in biblical interpretation is that you let the Bible interpret itself. You let the Bible interpret itself. Meaning, you use what is abundantly clear in Scripture— to explain what is unclear. You use what is simple to make sense of the difficult. And to that end, it is worth looking at other passages to see where ideas similar to chapter 5, verse 6 pop up. So where else do we find passages that talk about things like the blood and the water? Well, if you were to read the Gospel of John, and that again is written by this same author, John who wrote this letter and 2 John and 3 John and Revelation also wrote the Gospel of John. And in that passage, John the Baptist, a preacher, prophet, and forerunner of Christ, had begun baptizing people with water as a sign of their repentance and as a sign of their faith in the redeeming work of God through the coming Messiah. In John 1, beginning of chapter 26, the baptizer said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And then jumping ahead to verse 31 of that same chapter, he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And then in verse 33 of chapter one, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John baptizes with water and Jesus, who would be revealed in and through being baptized by water, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Friends, in in God's eternal purpose, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist as a means of revealing to the baptizer and to all of Israel and you and I that Jesus was and is the Messiah. And the way that John the Baptist would know that Jesus was the Messiah because there were several men who were being baptized was that the Holy Spirit himself would descend upon Jesus at his baptism. That's what verse 33 of of that passage talks about. And then through that sign that God gave him, God would show that Jesus alone had the ability to indwell the hearts of those who belong to him through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what happened. Listen to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. 
and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Just as the Holy Spirit told John it would happen, it happened. And so, when John declares in verse 6 that Jesus came by the water, he is saying in no uncertain terms that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And at his baptism, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the voice of the Father from the heavens provided undeniable evidence that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. Now, that alone is certainly enough to counter the claims that the Gnostics were making, but John doesn't stop there. Along with saying that Jesus came by the water, John also said that Jesus came by the blood, right? Meaning, Jesus' deity was verified at his baptism, right? The Holy Spirit descends upon him. The Father calls out of heaven who he is. But Jesus' humanity was verified at his crucifixion, where his precious blood was spilled and shed for us. So at his baptism, he came by water, and in his crucifixion, he came by blood. Now, after Jesus' sham of a trial, he was stripped, and he was beaten, and he was nailed to a cross, and the Gospels record a host of prophecies that were fulfilled in the last hour of Jesus' life. So in John 19, verses 28 through 34, the apostle John records, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had, who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, listen, and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So when the apostle John points to the idea that Jesus came by water and blood, he is saying, Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. Yes, he is the son of God. Yes, he is the savior of mankind. Yes, his identity has been verified by the Father and the Spirit. And yes, he is fully God, but he is also fully man. He is so much fully man, says John, that he is marked by blood and he is marked by death. Not only did Jesus die on the cross, but Roman soldiers pierced his side just to make sure that he was really dead and blood and water flowed forth. See, the Apostle John here is building a case for Christ's deity and his humanity in these verses because Christ is both. And he is building that case based on the work of Jesus and the testimony of the many who witnessed it, himself included. Now, continuing in 1 John, 
chapter five, verses six and seven. This is the back end of six and all of seven. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So we read verse eight there too. So in verses six and seven and eight, John is letting his readers know that the evidence of Jesus's deity and humanity is overwhelming for several reasons. First, the Holy Spirit testifies to the veracity of Jesus's claims. After all, it was he who gave the promise to John the Baptist before Christ had appeared publicly. So he made that promise to John And then it was he himself who fulfilled that promise by being the very one who then descended upon Jesus. So God declares to John that this is how you are going to know who the Messiah is. And then God the Spirit comes and descends upon Jesus, revealing that he is the one. And the means by which the Spirit revealed himself as the testimony was through the baptismal waters of Jesus Christ. This is how the Spirit was able to testify, that he had said that this was going to happen, and then he himself completed it. This was a verifiable and historical moment that was attested to by public record and the witnesses of those who gathered. But Christ's identity as fully man and not spirit alone was made clear at the cross. This is where we get into the blood. This is where his blood was poured out and he gave up his spirit. And if those pieces of evidence were not significant enough on their own, John tells us that all three elements, meaning the water, his baptism, the blood, his crucifixion, and the spirit are in agreement. But John doesn't even stop there, though that would be plenty. He puts the proverbial nail in the coffin of this argument in verses 9 and 10 by speaking to the character of the Holy Spirit as a key witness. Verse 9 of 1 John reads, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. My friends, if human testimony can bear the weight of a legal burden and be enough to verify a certain claim, how much more valuable do you suppose, how much more trustworthy do you suppose is the testimony of the Holy Spirit himself? the one who verifies the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The testimony of man by way of comparison is nothing. The Spirit of God himself testifies inwardly and outwardly. And in an incredible twist, John lets us know that not only does the Holy Spirit provide evidence at the baptism of Jesus and in the death of Jesus, and he does, but he actually bears witness in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus. That's you and me. The spirit within us testifies to the truth of who Christ is and who we are in him. Romans 8, 4 says it this way. For those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. And then jumping ahead to verses 15 and 17 of Romans 8. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Did you hear that? The spirit himself The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So my friends, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, recognize that John says you are calling God a liar. God says that he is, and you're saying he's not. And that is a terrifying (laughs) accusation to make about the one who is all-powerful and the one who himself says he is the truth. You see, truth is not just an idea, but truth is a person. And that person is God himself who says that Jesus is the Christ, who says that Jesus is fully man and fully God based on his baptism and his crucifixion. And he bears witness, the same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and heirs with Christ. So let's not call the spirit a liar. Finishing up in verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, I am going to talk about some of these ideas next week uh, in a message that I actually wrote. Uh, But today, I will just leave things here. As we discussed earlier, part of what the Gnostics struggled with is the idea that spiritual beings could experience hardship, remember? That's why they created separation between Jesus, who suffered on the cross, and the Christ. They could not imagine that God would suffer. You see, the Gnostics wanted pleasure, and they wanted comfort, and they wanted to do whatever was necessary to avoid hardship and pain. And as such, the death of Jesus Christ flew directly in the face of their presumptions. That doesn't make sense, they thought. And in their desire to explain away the things that did not sit well with them, they sadly missed a critical truth. In doing so, they missed a critical truth. And the truth is that Jesus, who was fully man and fully God, did not have his life taken from him, but he laid it down freely. He did not have his life taken from him, but he laid it down freely. Prior to his death, Jesus said in John chapter 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down of my own accord. In verse 18, Jesus was explaining that the reason that he was willing to lay down his life is because of the tremendous love he had for his father and for his sheep, those who belong to him by faith. He was willing to do it. And the truth that the Gnostics missed did not even end there. Yes, they missed that Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. But worse than that, they missed what followed. 
In that same verse, Jesus continued, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Listen, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He lays it down of his own accord and he has the same authority to take it up again. My friends, the Gnostics, simply put, could not abide the idea of worshiping a dead savior. And on that, I think we would all agree. On that, we would all agree. Because, my friends, as Scripture tells us, if there is no resurrection, then the Bible is not true. And Scripture tells us that we are to be pitied the most among all people. The center point of the gospel is the resurrection. As a pastor friend of mine once said it, if there were only a cross, Jesus would only be a martyr. If there were only a resurrection, we'd simply have a modern miracle. But in both the cross and the empty tomb, we have our salvation. In the cross and in the empty tomb, we have our salvation. Both are the gospel. My friends, there was in fact a cross and there was and there is a resurrection. And the same Christ who laid down his life freely of his own accord also took up his life again. And it is through Christ's death and through his resurrection that we are freed from the chains and the bondage of this world and its systems. It is through Christ's death and his resurrection that he gave us eternal life, which we will talk about at length next week. And it is through Christ's death and resurrection that we were brought into communion, not only with God, but with one another. The spirit and the water and the blood testified to it, and they all agree. So let's rejoice and believe the good news. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, we give to you our, our praise and our worship this morning because by the baptism of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit, we can be certain that your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, is the promised Messiah, fully man and fully God, who alone can save us from our sins and give us eternal life. Just as Jesus overcame sin and death, just as he overcame the world and its systems, so we who are in him are overcomers in him. Nothing that this world can throw at us will defeat us or separate us from your love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Father, give us courage in the days of darkness, reminding us of your power, of your presence, and your eternal promises. In Jesus' name we ask and we pray. Amen.